Do you follow 11FS on LinkedIn? If you don't, you should. We make video content over there that you don't want to miss out on. And we're starting not one, but two new live shows. On Tuesdays, we're going to dive into the biggest industry news stories. And on Thursdays, we'll be grilling some of the biggest experts in financial services on what they do for a living. You'll have the chance to ask your questions and get them answered live on the show by some of the best minds in the industry. Find out more by heading over to our 11FS LinkedIn page. Thanks, and on with the show. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Open Banking doubles its user base in 2020, Can Ping An rescue HSBC? And Amazon One, a new payment method in the palm of your hand. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 467 of Fintech Insider. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for today, Sarah Kashansky. How are you doing, Sarah? Welcome back. Welcome back. I was here here three weeks ago. <laughs> you, you, I haven't been gone that long. You never leave. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I left the county and everything. I didn't leave the country. I'm not going I that just, far yet. I just, I just assume you're always online. If anyone wants to drop in ad hoc for a podcast, you're there ready yeah. to host. Just in here waiting on my headset. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. I'm raring to go. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good show. And as is now... Well, familiar, if not yet entirely normal, we are joined remotely by some awesome guests. First up, uh, making a much welcome return, we have Imran Gulam Husseinwala, OBE, and trustee of the Open Banking Implementation Entity. How are you doing today, Imran? Really good, really good. And well done on getting through my name. I'm actually, yeah, I'm glowing with pride, I really am. Um, your reaction, actually, I, I know our listeners can't see it, but um, your reaction was priceless. Um, Imran, for those not in the UK or in, in need of a refresher, could you just give us a, a quick overview of what the OBIE is and does? Yeah. So the Open Banking Implementation Entity is the entity that I run, appointed by the regulator, in this case, the Competition Markets Authority, to deliver open banking here in the UK on a rigid set of standards. And uh, there's a team of about 150 people helping me do that. And um, yeah, we've got some pretty awesome powers to make sure that the banks build it the way that we want it to be built. Yeah, and I think we'll see in one of our stories later on some of the successes that you guys had as well. So Imran, great to have you uh, on the show. And um, also making a, a much welcome return, we have Laurel Quinn, founder and CEO of Sustainably. Uh, thanks for joining us, Laurel. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Ross. Thanks thanks for inviting me. Always a pleasure. Uh, it's a privilege to have you on. And um, again, why don't you give us uh, a quick reminder of what Sustainably does? Um, yeah, so Sustainably uses open banking. So thanks to Imran <laughs> for all of that. Um, but we use open banking to make it easy for people to have a positive impact as part of everyday life and for businesses to um, hyper-localize and personalize their social responsibility to what their customers and employees actually care about. Um, so yeah, simply you just use sustainably to make little micro donations every time you shop. So you can remove plastics from the ocean or um, help people who are homeless or um, lots of other actual things that you can do just as part of everyday life. Really simple. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. And again, I think we've got um, a couple of stories further on down that sort of point to maybe sustainability um, becoming more of a, a focus. So really interesting, again, to get your uh, thoughts on those. Okay, great. Uh, let's get started. So our first story today comes from AltFi and concerns open banking doubling its user base to 2 million Brits in just six months. So users of open banking enabled products now exceed 2 million, doubling in just over six months, despite the disruption caused by COVID-19. The data shows that consumers are using open banking enabled products to better understand their spending, how to save, manage their income and expenditure and access cheaper credit, uh, even more so, in fact, since the start of the pandemic. Um, there's been a steady increase at a rate of about 160,000 users per month, which only plateaued in April and May when lockdown measures in the UK were introduced um, before that strong growth then resumed. 
Uh, Imran, I guess it makes sense to come to you first on this one. How important a milestone is this? I think it's a crucially important milestone. The, what it does is it really demonstrates for the first time that open banking is working. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been very confident that it would, but with 2 million customers and growing strongly, it really kind of shows to all of us that the technology works, the ecosystem works, and crucially, that fundamental principle that was right at the heart of open banking in the very, very early design stages, which is that the data that the financial institution holds on the customer belongs to the customer, not to the financial institution, is true. And if you give people the capability to be able to access that data and share that data in a secure and simple way, which is effectively what we've done, then they'll do it and they'll use it. So, you know, I I think we're right at the very foothills of where open banking could go. There are so many exciting innovative products being built on it. Uh, There's over 300 entities, authorized entities in the open banking ecosystem, all at various stages of bringing propositions to market. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a really important milestone. It also, I think, sends a signal across to the world where a lot of people globally are looking at the UK and trying to understand what they can learn from it in order to help them on their own open banking journey. And this is a proof point. Uh, It's a real proof point. And whilst I don't think we've hit escape velocity yet, uh, really excited that we're not far off it. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, it'd be interesting, I suppose, actually, as well to get your thoughts. So on on the proof point, are there learnings for those on the outside looking in at the UK around how they could, you know, look to drive growth in terms of their own implementations, in terms of their own initiatives. Because these, as you quite rightly say, are interesting numbers. It's steady and it's sustained growth over a long period of time. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of learnings. One is that for those countries that haven't yet decided to mandate open banking, but they're kind of leaving it to market forces, it shows that if you kickstart the open banking revolution with a bit of a regulatory catalyst, it means that you do get things going and you make progress. I think there's another important learning, which is if you just compare our journey in the UK versus Europe, continental Europe, I should probably say nowadays, as just a kind of head-to-head race, well, we have gotten further than, frankly, any other country in Europe on the basis that we've created a standard, and that standard is quite rigid, and also that we've got an implementation entity to help make the whole thing work. I think the crucial point where we fall down a bit, though, is that we don't really have a plan for what next. And of course, it's a bit early to be deciding on what next, given we're only at 2 million. I mean, it's a great number, but it's just a milestone. We need to figure out what we're going to do. Are we going to do the Australian version of open finance, open everything? Or are we going to stop here? And I think that is the key question for government and the regulators to get their heads around, frankly, over the next six months. And there are many, many proponents for doing this in in the fintech community and wider. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And absolutely fascinating, Imran, to have you here and to give us the view from the sort of implementation side. Laurel, very interested to get your views, you know, and, and your understanding from the customer side. What do you think is driving this from the customer side? Yeah, I think it's that purpose and value-driven proposition. So like Imran says, the consumer owns their banking data, so the consumer should be able to use that data in ways that they want that benefits their lifestyle. So having open banking and then open finance and all of these other things will actually enable the consumer to get better products and services. So that's kind of really where it all boils down to. And we've seen increases in our users. You know, we're up... 86% increase on our roundups, 143% increase on our donations, 157% increase in the causes that we're supporting. And that's just growing and growing. And, you know, there is obviously a barrier with people kind of connecting to open banking and thinking, what is this for? But if you can really demonstrate the value of it and the security around it, um, that's kind of the proposition and the use case. Uh, You know, it's all about providing that customer value. Yeah, and that I think the value point is so important. Sarah, do you think it's fair to say that for open banking to really achieve ubiquity, it almost has to be invisible? Like the magic about open banking from a consumer perspective isn't what's happening at the API layer. It's the fact that you can make a seamless payment or get a holistic view of your financial situation. Um, 
I think from the perspective of the kind of the account aggregation based features, shall we say, so some of the personal financial management tools, some of the roundup tools, etc., then it probably does have to be kind of invisible. It has to be, a, you know, a swipe on, swipe off, toggle on, toggle off kind of situation. The problem there, of course, you've got to make sure that consent is still gained. You've got to make sure consent is renewed. Um, and there's kind of that conversation that's been had quite frequently about, you know, do you have a dashboard? How do you do it? I had a conversation this morning um, actually about open banking with some fantastic ladies from all around the world. We were talking about all the different experiences that they'd had, you know, ladies from Hong Kong and from New Zealand and Australia and how different people are doing things there. And it was it was really inspiring to see that the different kind of, um, to go back to your point about learning, so, you know, they've looked at the UK and they've gone, yeah, that's good. But they've also gone, we wouldn't do it that way. We're going to try it this way. And they've leapfrogged in some places. And I guess that's what happens when you go first. What's going to be really interesting to me is to see the next stage, which I think the next stage of adoption is that payments piece. Um, I would say this, I just had a piece published on account to account payments. So, you know, always a chance to um, shout about my own work. Um, But it's going to be really interesting to see how many people take that up, because I think you don't want that to be invisible. I think people are going to want to know how this works. They're going to want to know what the security is in place. So yes, it needs to be frictionless. Yes, it needs to be kind of as smooth a journey as possible. and, And theoretically, that's possible. But I don't believe people are just going to go, well, here's a new payment mechanism. I'm going to do that. I think that that piece is, yes, people are caring more and more about their data. Um, and, you know, that's great. People are finally understanding the value of their data, what they need to do to protect it. But fundamentally, they still care more about their money, <laughs> where it is, where it's going, and if anybody's going to steal it off them, and especially at the moment when so many people are, are hard pressed. So um, it's going to be really interesting to me to see that next phase. And, and I think at that point, it can't be invisible. There has to be some explanation of what's going on in the background, particularly here in the UK, where we're not really used to that payment mechanism. In parts of Europe, it's quite different. But here, right, I think there's a, there's a, quite a hurdle to overcome there. And there needs to be transparency and explanation. I think that's a really interesting point. Um, Imran, I think you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, I just actually want to agree with a lot of what Sarah says. At the moment, payments just haven't fired at all. So I think if you look at API volumes, about a quarter of a percent of our half a billion API calls that went through last month were related to payments. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them is the the fact that there's some really important functionality that still needs to be built and implemented by the banks, particularly with regard to refunds. So we found that merchants are really kind of a bit ambivalent about it until they get refunds into the functionality because so much of e-commerce has a refund associated with it. So that needs to be a seamless element. And of course, the other point as well is that whilst people seem to be a little bit more comfortable with, let's say, API performance, and by that I mean things like availability and response times, being kind of a bit okay-ish for data, they do not stand for it on payments. It has to be kind of like four nines and above to meet their expectations. Now, the APIs are getting there. We're not there yet, but you know, by the turn of the year, the APIs will be that robust and the uh, functionality will have been built. So I'm really optimistic about the outlook for payments. But I, I think back to your original question, the data bit is kind of invisible. It's almost like open banking for data is a bit like the internet. People don't use the internet. They use the services on top of it. They use Netflix or you know whatever. But when it comes to the payments, they are actually using the payment itself. So it'd be really interesting to see how that pans out. We are not, at the moment, pushing a brand. We're leaving that to the market, and we'll see how that develops. Good. And and then just sort of final word, uh, Laurel, to you on this one. Um, What do you think it's been about the pandemic in particular that seems to have driven a bit of an uptick? Yeah, um, well, obviously, like most other services, we had a bit of a downturn in March when there was everyone was not there was not any payments happening then. But since then, people are kind of, I guess, becoming a bit more conscious and actually do want to make a difference and have an impact. And similarly, kind of, I was speaking to um, one of the guys who is over at the PayPal um, Giving Fund, and they've seen the same. You know, people want to be able to give but obviously lots of fundraising events have been cancelled so that type of activity is is out but there are other ways and if you bring it to the consumer in ways that make it easy for them then there is kind of appetite to do so there yeah i think you know as well there's a lot of people isn't there that have had um just spare time on their hands and are looking at you know getting their uh finances into shape i think there's various push and pull factors you know the fact that branches haven't been available so people are sort of looking at digital alternatives it's fascinating to uh 
see where managing our personal finances kind of sits in the list of our favorite things to do because i think we literally have to have absolutely no other alternative whatsoever before we'll happily sit down and do these things but i mean it's good because um i think people are getting these things into shape now and obviously that's going to stand them in good stead uh, any final word on this if I could just say a, a quick word, the um, kind of lessons or, or things that we saw from the COVID crisis, which unfortunately we're obviously not through yet, is that when it hit, so many of the ecosystem in open banking came up with some fantastic proposals and propositions to really help get the country back on its feet. And they were things like helping people apply for furlough, demonstrate they were working, helping small businesses demonstrate they could qualify for C-bills and bounce-back loans, economic observatories. Uh, there were so many ideas. And the only frustration has been that neither the banks nor the government were able to assimilate and integrate these propositions. But I could really see some of these ideas you know, being developed further uh, and being part of the resilience plan for the UK, whether it's this crisis or something else. I, I could see open banking playing a role in that. So, um, yeah, I'm re- really excited for that and, and for, you know, the, the really positive attitude that so many people in the ecosystem had. It's really encouraging in, in a very dark time. Yeah, I think it's a really important point, actually, just to close this one out, especially, you know, when we've seen how little resilience was actually um, baked in and, and, and how poorly elements of the crisis have been handled as a result. So, um, yeah, again, I think that's a wonderful point. Okay, I'm going to move us on. And our next story comes from Bloomberg and concerns China's Ping An insurance increasing its stake in HSBC to 8%. So last week we talked about on the show how HSBC's shares are or were at the time at an all-time low. This week they rose the most since 2009 as its biggest shareholder, Ping An Insurance, raised its stake to 8% after buying 10.8 million shares. Um, they remain confident in HSBC's long-term prospects and the recent slump in the share and the valuation only increases HSBC's appeal. According to their spokespeople, who are hoping HSBC can return to paying shareholders dividends. At the behest of UK regulators, the bank suspended its dividend payments earlier this year, alienating its Hong Kong retail investor base. HSBC has pledged to review the payout once the impact of the pandemic becomes clearer. Ping An, which has owned a major stake in HSBC since late 2017, on Monday saw a gain of about 27 million Hong Kong dollars on its latest purchase. Still, overall, it has taken a loss of more than 8 billion over the past three years. So, uh, Sarah, I made you wait till last in the previous story, so I'm going to let you jump in here. What are your thoughts on this one? Um, To be honest with you, I don't know enough about... Uh, you know, international acquisitions and purchases to be, you know, an expert on this. Not that I'm an expert on, on many things, but um, this is one, let's put it that way, I'm slightly less confident on. From what I can see and from what I've read about it, there are two potential uh, motives for uh, Ping An doing this. Um, one is simply it's cheap um, and they believe in it and they thought, well, why not, whilst HSBC shares are that low, why not buy at the bottom, you know, as they say, and, uh, you know, they obviously believe that it will return to previous highs or even previous highs, but still come back up. Um, so it could be just it's cheap, cheap stock and they've already got a, a, a share in the business. So kind of it's an easy thing to do. The one that I understand less about, um, which has been talked about, and maybe somebody else can talk about it in more detail with more insight, is the political element, which so you mentioned uh, HSBC's, you, you know, at the behest of UK regulators made some changes. You know, it's obviously HSBC, it's Hong Kong and Shanghai <laughs> Banking Corporation, so it obviously has a, a you know a, a Chinese history. Then you tie in all the things about HSBC being involved in the US uh, with the Huawei uh, scandal case, whatever however you want to look at it. Then you look at kind of HSBC's uh, role in uh, what was happening with Hong Kong uh, earlier this year with some of the protests. Then you've got China threatening to blacklist HSBC or put it on. I don't think it's blacklist, some sort of list which isn't going to reflect well on HSBC because of its behavior. So all of those things add up. And to some people, that makes it look like Ping An's decision is a political decision. They're going to slowly increase their stake in HSBC until that they can put in a bid to acquire the um, the Asian part of the business, which is still based in Hong Kong. Um, I know that that's a thing. I know that that's a story. I know that people have talked about it. But as I said, I wouldn't want to comment on which one it is. I suspect there's an element of both. 
I suspect it was cheap, so it made business sense. And possibly there are some other thoughts going on in the back, but I, I don't know. So if anybody else has more expertise in the Asian markets, please. Well, yeah, you're right. So I, I believe the list that um, the Chinese government was looking at placing HSBC on was was one that um, would negatively impact on the Chinese reputation due to poor performance. And and actually, oh, I goodness. think this. Yeah. <laughs> so you did badly. You're reflecting badly on us. It's like you're not reflecting badly on yourself. You're reflecting badly on me. It's yeah. like a disappointed and parent. <laughs> exactly, and, and and of course that would of course then have have uh, further sort of downward effects on on what was already a, a pretty suppressed share price. Um, I mean, I think you you summed it up actually, Sarah, quite succinctly. I mean, look, as with banks everywhere, it's been a, an incredibly difficult time for HSBC. You know, they announced a seven-fold jump in reserves for bad loans due to the impact of COVID earlier this year. Obviously, they've been subject to some pretty damaging revelations out of the FinCEN files. But exactly to your point, it's exacerbated by the fact that HSBC are also sort of uniquely exposed to the escalating tensions between the US and China. And they did also, you know, book um, a longstanding trend of sort of neutrality by publicly backing that controversial national security law that was imposed by the government in Beijing on Hong Kong. Um, Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, which of course puts another player in the triangle, which is the UK, which obviously has uh, quite an affinity with Hong Kong and, and you know, due to the the handover, etc. So not only was it admired in the, the debate, debate, I suppose debate is a polite way to put it, between China and the US, then the UK comes in as a third global player and HSBC is just caught in the middle of all these three global players and, and their political machinations. Yeah, exactly right. And so HSBC is based out of the UK, but makes the vast majority of its earnings in Asia um, over the last number of years, it's been scaling down its investments in the UK and Europe um, and moving assets to China. So there is a trend here. I guess, Laurel, Imran, do you guys have a view as to sort of, you know, going back to Sarah's original point, to what extent this is a sort of savvy investment at below market price and to what extent is it being driven by sort of geopolitical factors? I guess um, from my point of view and and in my role in open banking, I, one of the banks I look after is HSBC UK. So I'm going to be necessarily bland uh, with what I say. But um, I, the way that I look at it is that HSBC will uh, have really welcomed this. One of their biggest shareholders is increasing their stake. It's in a territory where they make the vast majority of their profits. I believe that 80 or so percent comes from Asia. And I think it's solidifying their base there. I'm not sure I'd look too much deeper into it. There is the point I think that probably is most relevant is the uh, the dividend pause that they hit at the beginning of the crisis, which was a requirement from the UK regulator, which is essentially on a ring-fenced business here in the UK, where the parent is making the majority of its earnings over in Asia. And I think that that conversation will play out, you know, will have a different nuance to it, uh, should it ever need to play out again? I think that's part of the part of what's going on here. Yeah, and look, I mean, you know, the banking sector, as with pretty much every sector, has been rattled in a in such an unprecedented way in, in response to COVID, and it, it has been a particularly difficult time. I suppose one interesting call out is that HSBC from two thousand and nine through to two thousand and twelve owned sixteen point eight percent of Ping An. They then sold those shares in 2012. Ping An is now worth more than HSBC and has actually turned the tables, as we've heard, by taking an 8% stake. Uh, Laurel, that's a pretty remarkable turnaround in a, in a short period, right? Yeah, I think it's pretty incredible. And, you know, if that's kind of their investment route, um, I guess it's kind of up, up to them and their shareholders. So it will be interesting to see how it pans out. But, I mean, as to what already Imran and Sarah have added, I don't really have anything, you know, any light bulb, um, you know, insights, other, you know, anything else to say. Sarah, any sort of additional thoughts on the that turnaround? Do we think it's uh, the start of smaller challenger banks sweeping in and taking stakes in big banks or is China just uh, an outlier? I think you, I mean, I think you have to say China is an outlier because Ping An is possibly the biggest insurer in the world at the moment. 
Um, it's, it's definitely up there. So, you know, when we talk about InsurTech, we don't talk about Ping An anymore because it's it's an incumbent and then some. Um, so I, I think, you know, I don't know the history there, but I think you have to accept that China is a bit of an anomaly, particularly when it comes to some of these businesses that have had, um, you know, early state support and have been around for quite a while. Um, so they may be new to us, but but they're not that new over there. And they are. Ping An is definitely, definitely a giant. The, the only thing that I might, uh, I don't know, this is quite far out, but the um, question bank assurance. So, you know, there was a time, particularly in Europe, when all the insurance companies and banks were all getting together because they had this view that they could cross-sell each other's products, particularly in branch. It'd be interesting. I, I don't particularly believe that that was ever proven to be the case. But look, China's a very different market. And I just wonder if there's any logic to that in, in what we're seeing here. So maybe you see more than just a financial investment. And uh, maybe over time, you see a bit of tie up of the businesses locally. We'll see. Yeah. And again, it's, it's a really interesting space. And I think definitely um, one to watch. Um, okay, we are just going to take a quick pause here while we hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility, while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. Um, our next story comes from Finextra and concerns a coalition of UK banks launched to standardised carbon accounting. The partnership of Carbon Accounting Financials, PCAF, is launching a coalition aimed at the promotion of measuring and disclosing carbon emissions in the UK financial services industry. The coalition includes NatWest, Lloyds Banking Group, Investec and Nationwide, and is chaired by the international arm of investment manager Federated Hermes. It's a partnership aimed at standardising carbon accounting and financial services, its methodologies will be applied to the coalition to accurately measure carbon emissions in a UK context. PCAF claims its open source, free of charge initiative will allow banks to access the greenhouse gas emissions of their lending books and portfolios and help align their strategies with the Paris Climate Agreement. Mark Carney, who we'll know as the former governor of the Bank of England and observer to PCAF, describes the coalition as an important step in placing carbon emissions at the heart of financial decisions. For financial firms, that means reviewing more than the emissions generated by their own business activity, Carney says. They must measure and report the emissions generated by the companies they invest in and lend to. So, Laura, let's come to, to you first on this. Um, as a huge advocate for sustainability and corporate social responsibility in finance, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good move to hold the, the banks to become accountable for not only the impact they have as organizations, but the impact of their whole lending portfolio as well. So, um, and all their activities. So I think it's a really great step in the, the right direction. I think um, the actions that are taken on the back of all this reporting and when people actually do see the, the impact of some of these organizations, it'll be interesting to see what steps they take to make corrective actions and bring kind of, you know, policies and things into place that will help, you know, reverse some of these huge carbon issues that we're having globally. But I think it will be interesting to see kind of how this evolves, if it will kind of, first of all, they're looking at their carbon emissions, will they then look at other issues that they may, that, you know, they may want to focus on as, as well. There are obviously other sustainable development goals that could be incorporated into their reporting to help you know society as a whole and the world so i think it's a good first step and it'll be interesting to see where it goes and, and what the outcomes are 
Um, yeah, so Sarah, keen to get your uh, your thoughts on this. And sort of last week, we covered a story on the news about NatWest partnering with Kogo to track customers' carbon footprints and sort of play that back to them and, you know, taking a, a slightly different approach. Do you think is sustainability now kind of finally taking its place at the the top table? Can we look forward now to some meaningful outcomes rather than sort of PR hungry, empty promises? I hope so. Um, I, I don't know how far along we are as to whether how soon we'll start seeing the meaningful outcomes, if that makes sense. So I also don't know how much of what we're seeing, what the balance is right now between PR and when people are actually doing things. Because one of the things that this story has mentioned, and also the city story that, you know, the, the, the city story that came out a couple of months ago, is that they're going to start measuring it and disclosing it. Great. But to Laurel's point, what are they going to do about it? So data is great. And once you've got data, you're more empowered to do things about it. But it kind of depends on what these organizations do off the back of it. Um, I will be the cynic and say I think it's still quite a trendy thing to do. Um, I think we have problems still with uh, in the UK, but also globally about what ESG even is. So if you're going to go down that kind of environmental, social governance, you know, measuring route, you know, how do you make sure that you've got markers? We don't even know what it is, let alone um you know how how well you're doing um so you'd kind of probably need a global accord there so uh, well maybe sorry you wouldn't necessarily need a global accord but there needs to be some accord um so data is great but then the next step is okay how do we measure it so that we know we're actually acting on it because the thing about data and the thing about numbers is you can make them prove anything you want, <laughs> said the analyst. Um, so um, I, I really hope so. I think I think it's a good step that, that companies are publicly announcing it. I just hope that they are held to account by the public, by their stakeholders and the media to say, well, you said you were going to do it. What's the result? Prove that you've done something, prove that it's had an impact. And if it hasn't had an impact, why not? And what are you going to do about that instead? Yeah, I think I was just going to say, I think your point, Sarah, probably comes to... Um accountability. And I was going to wonder, Laurel, actually, if you uh, wanted to sort of come in on that as well. Yeah, I was just going to say that many companies are kind of going for this purpose-driven playbook approach. So, you know, it's kind of like like Sarah and I were just saying, they have to, there has to be some actions at the end of it. And I think things like the Global Open Finance Centre for Excellence and all these other initiatives, which are kind of looking at ethics and trust and data in the financial services will be really interesting to see kind of what initiatives they start putting into place, you know, around a number of different things, for example, supporting the industry to to gain that customer trust and closing the gaps with some, you know, for example, gold standards around what they're doing. So um, yeah, there definitely has to be action and not just data. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Imran, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, uh, I so want this to work. I really, really want it to work. But I just feel that the odds are stacked against it. And I hope I'm wrong. And maybe I will be wrong. But, you know, carbon accounting, just just even putting the word accounting in there. Just I, I used to work at one of the big four. And, you know, there are that's legions of people putting all sorts of thoughts into how to present the numbers in the best possible way. It's tough. And I think there's another thing in there as well, which is this is great that the banks are kind of positioning themselves or volunteering themselves into this role. But I'm not sure if I were to design it top down that I'd really necessarily want the banks to play that role. I mean, the the banks already find themselves as such stewards of so many social protections that would otherwise, frankly, sit with government. I'm kind of interested to see that they they want to take on more of that kind of role you know whether it's supporting vulnerable people or stopping scammers or stopping fraud or stopping terrorists so much of it keeps coming back to the banks for them also to be the stewards of carbon accounting or or just measuring carbon in their loan book it's, it's a tough gig i mean you know typically if you want to try and get this sorted i think you either start at the you you try and look at it from the source so who are the participants that are creating the carbon dioxide? Do you look at it at the consumer end? So, and, and you measure it either at one end or the other, and that gives you a kind of holistic view of, of what's going on. And, and this kind of sits somewhat bizarrely in the middle. So I'd, I'd love to, I mean, it's great that Mark Carney's involved. I've got a huge amount of respect for the individual. I'm sure he's thought through all these things, but I don't still understand quite how it's going to work. I mean, if, if I may, just, just take the UK government's net zero commitment. One of the, I, I was startled and 
to find out, and I think many people probably are as well, is that it doesn't include imports. So all it is is just net zero on emissions determined in this country. And of course, if you do that, then you're creating an incentive structure to offshore all your heavy carbon producing industry and import it in the form of finished goods. This is really complicated. Yeah, and and I think that kind of goes back to Sarah's earlier point, doesn't it, about if you torture the data enough, it can tell you whatever you want it to tell. So we're probably, I think, universally skeptical that this is an initiative is is probably what we need to move the dial. I'm interested then just to get a a sort of temperature check, um, I would say in the room, if we were in a room, around are we feeling maybe more optimistic than around... um, I suppose the tone among consumers generally, particularly around sort of like um, conscious consumerism, maybe more of a move towards sustainable spending. And then consumer face- facing apps like Laura, like sustainably and others. Um, and, and, and and like Sarah kind of said, this is, this is sort of on trend. Do you think maybe we're going to start to see um, a move on the dial from, from that perspective? Yeah, I, I think, uh, my perspective is that businesses, well, all the survey data shows this as well, that most CEOs are looking at responsible business and what they need to do to improve that. But, you know, very few under like 17% was the number that I saw recently don't have measurable plans in place. So this is a time to really start thinking about the value proposition you provide because customers do want solutions that are more sustainable and ethical now. So um, I think it will become more and more necessary for businesses to be more ethical and sustainable. And it's just part of good business to be doing that and thinking about how you can improve. Um, so I think it will be driven by the market. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and, and I think back to Sarah's point as well. Um, I think it's time that sort of ESG sort of stepped up and, and, and started delivering uh, on some of its uh, its promise. I am going to move us on. I know there's lots, um, there's lots of interest on this one, but I am going to move us on to the next story, which comes from TechCrunch uh, and concerns Amazon's introduction of the Amazon One, which is a payment method in the palm of your hand. So stay with us on this one. Amazon's retail team has announced a new biometric device that will allow customers to pay at their Amazon Go stores using only their palm. The product is a scanner in which you insert your card and then hover your palm over the device to associate your palm signature with your payment mechanism. Okay, I hope you're still with us. Once the card and palm are connected... You'll then be able to enter the store in the future just by holding your palm over the device for a second or so. Um, Amazon stresses that the device is supposed to be contactless, but some critics say that this is a product that might require some education. Uh, And I think a lot of that is because consumers are used to using their fingerprint to unlock phones or using a, a thumbprint to open a secure lock. So there are worries that users will assume that they will have to physically put their palm on the device in order for it to work. And of course, during the global pandemic, uh, that can become a problem. So I think at first glance, I thought this was very practical. Um, But many of the criticisms seem to center on whether or not this will be intuitive for users. Um, What were your first thoughts on this one, Imran, if I come to you first? Um, I guess my initial thought was, Oh, here we go. Here's another gimmick, a gimmick in the payment space. You know, I, I remember some of the little kind of bracelets or kind of jewelry wear kind of chipless things that you could use in festivals and so on. And they never really kind of captured the imagination. Um, but look, you know, I think fair play to them. It's an interesting time. People are, are looking at trying new things. It could take off. The, the bit that they need to be careful about, I would have thought, is, um, is it a bit spooky? Uh, in, in the sense that, you know, where does this kind of go next uh, for Amazon? Where do, where do these readers start turning up? Because, you know, buying something in a store is one thing, but could you use it to access mass transit? Uh, would you use it in, a, in an airport as you're kind of going through? You know, it begins to just touch on identity. And then question mark is, who do you want holding your identity? Now, I may be pushing it way too far. This might just be a, a good way of, you know, Getting a getting a sandwich in press, um, hopefully, but um, I, I don't know. Jury's out in my view. Yeah, Sarah, I'm sort of relying on you to provide the uh, the more cynical point of view on this. Um, 
Well, I'm not that cynical in that this technology's been around for a long time. These vein readers, basically, as far as I understand it, it's it's looking at the, the patterns of veins in your hand as well as sort of, um, that's, that was what I got from it. I may be misunderstanding it, but it's that kind of thing where you put a finger in and a palm in um, has been around for two or three years. Uh, Barclays and Hitachi announced at the end of last year that they were going to uh, issue these uh, fingerprint, finger vein readers to their corporate customers I think um, I can't fully remember the story so I'm sure somebody will pull me up on that this is how many new shows I do they all blur into one um, I'm not I'm not that cynical about the technology um, I question whether people will see the advantages of it over using a fingerprint um, I think Imran's point about it being Amazon is a good one you know we, we know that Amazon have um, have been hauled up a couple of times on on you know technology because people are worried about it being Amazon who has the technology and the data they're holding um, so I'm not I'm not wholly cynical. I think I've seen stranger things. You know, I wouldn't have thought ten years ago I could just look at a computer and it would open because it recognised my face. Put it that way. So um, I question maybe Imran, you covered this point, but I, I I question why Amazon wants to do it. You know, I, to your point, you question where they crop up just to turn that slightly in its head. It's like, what does Amazon want <laughs> from me? Is it is it my biometrics? Is it my vein pattern? Are they going to recreate me? I don't think well, so. But I, I have I have a view on this, right? And to me, actually, I read this and I thought this is very Amazon. Um, because let's not forget that Amazon is the same company that decided just to take EU fines and agree to reimburse customers uh, if there were any instances of fraud, rather than actually introduce verified by Visa or the Mastercard Secure Pass. Um, verification that second step at checkout um i think again for me this is trying to it's almost replicating that in a sense in a physical location so it's trying to make everything as contactless as seamless and as easy as possible to get people in and out and to have made a purchase in the meantime yes but wouldn't if I was Amazon, I would have gone down the route of this, you know, the Amazon Go. When you go in with your phone, you've got Bluetooth on. It scans you as you go in. It knows what you pick up, and it scans you as you go out. And you don't ever have to pay. Why? What? That seems like a more obvious route to do the kind of like the the friction free shopping. Um, yeah. Maybe this is a way to chase you down if you don't, you know, acknowledge everything you put in your bag. Yeah, <laughs> because the and, point of Amazon Go, obviously, is you go in and out. Sorry, Ross. No, no, exactly. It's exactly that. Um, but I think it, it, it's interesting. You know, maybe the reason that, well, it, it certainly seems like the reason that they've um, chosen the the palm recognition rather than facial recognition or alternatives is that apparently they've said that the palm is more private. And that's because you can't determine someone's identity by looking at the image of their palm. Well, you, you can if you've got fingerprint reading technology and access to sure. Interpol's database, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, um, and a lot of people have their fingerprints taken. You have to remember to eliminate them from crime scenes as well. So it's not just criminals who are in fingerprint databases. So no, absolutely. Maybe I've watched too much CSI. Sorry, Laurel, did you have a point? I'm, yeah, I'm, going, I was, I'm going down a route there. <laughs> I, like your, I like your thinking, though, Sarah. Um, I think it will be interesting to see what comes next because with Amazon, it's always there's always going to be something. So I think this is going to be the first in a kind of line of what is next. So obviously we've got, I mean, Alexa's listening to me right now, so maybe I should ask her, but she doesn't seem to know much other than what the weather is. So, um, But yeah, I think just watch this space because it will just be part of something much bigger and we'll find out we'll probably find out quite soon what their plans are yeah i look i think for me um and probably going back to something we touched on at the top of this one as well you know amazon does not have the proudest of histories when it comes to handling users personal information um i wonder whether the promise of a more seamless in-store experience is a sufficient value exchange to encourage uptake in that context. But look, Laurel, I think your point's um, exactly the right one. Um, watch this space and, and sort of let's see where we go. It's probably relating to Internet of Things and other things that they're kind of, I don't know, looking at. But you can imagine kind of there's probably you know, a huge amount of R&D going on there that nobody, well, outside the building knows. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. Absolutely. All right, I am going to move us on to our next story, which comes from Finextra and concerns Greenlight raising $215 million for kids' debit cards. 
Um, so Greenlight Financial Technology, the company behind an app and debit card for kids, has joined the Unicorn Club after it closed a $215 million Series C funding round, now valued at $1.2 billion. The product aims to enhance financial literacy in children while giving parents control of spending. Parents are also able to give allowances, set flexible store-level spend controls, and manage chores. Oh, the joys. The app also offers children lessons in earning, saving, spending, and giving. It was launched in 2017, and the company now serves more than 2 million parents and kids who have collectively saved more than $50 million. The funding will be used for growth as the firm is working to roll out a revamped app with investing tools in the next few months. So, Sarah, I'll come to you first on this one. What do you think about the valuation and I guess the fact that there is still no shortage in funding for fintechs? Um, I thought you were going to come to me with points about children's finance. I was all prepped for that. Um, I, I, I think I, I think there is no shortage of money for fintechs. You know, part of what I do every day is I spend one or two hours every day looking through the news stories related to fintech finance technology and where it overlaps. And there's, there's still a lot of money sloshing around. Um, so I don't think that's dried up, and I, I don't foresee it drying up imminently. Um, obviously, it depends. You know, where the global economic situation happens, but I don't I don't feel like fintech investment is going to be something that takes a huge hit anytime soon. Um, the valuation, I can't comment on because I don't know their financials. So I don't know how much money they make unless it's in here and I haven't read my notes and it's with the producer shouts at me. Um, I don't know how much money they make. I don't know how reasonable that valuation is based on their profit, their revenue, their losses. Um, I do know that their, I do know the business model is pretty standard um, for this kind of app. They charge $5 a month to parents, um, and then the parents kind of have control. All the money in the account is, is the parents' money, if you like. They fund it. Interestingly, all the interest on the savings comes from the parents as well. So you're paying your kids' savings interest. And I'm like, huh? How does... That's a really good model. Who came up with that? So you, you you know you say you have this automatic allowance where the kids check off their their to do list or their chores list, and every time they do it, they get a dollar in their account or whatever it is. Like I get that. That's kind of how pocket money works. But then if they move money into savings, which is a habit you want to encourage in them, you also want to you know show them that presumably if you're using this as a financial education tool, that money goes into savings, savings grow over time. You then have to decide on interest rate, which I just thought was fascinating. Um, just to, to speak generally about these products, if I can, there are such a glut of them in the market right now. Um, now, I'm not a parent. So, you know, maybe somebody else on the call who is a parent can comment on this better. I don't know how many parents are going to be willing to not only pay an app to give their children financial education, but also then pay the interest on their children's savings accounts. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe somebody else who has kids would comment on that. But I think parents who are interested... In educating their children financially, there are other ways to do this. You know, if you want to give kids a debit card for free, most of the major banks will enable you to do that. In the UK, arguably, I don't know the situation in the US, but in the UK, most of the major banks will give you a kid's account for free. So what are you paying for other than a snazzy app? Now, maybe the snazzy app is attractive. But how old are the kids? The kids have smartphones. They have access to the app. So um, there's a lot of money going into it. There's a lot of them around. I'm sure some of them will succeed. I just don't know what it is that will make it succeed over and above another one short yeah. of having 215 dollars 215 million dollars in your bank account i i would love to get a parent's view on this i wonder if and look i completely agree sarah the business model is uh yeah they've cracked that one for sure but i do wonder whether from a parent's perspective it's a small price to pay to give at an early age your kids some good habits and behaviors around managing money and actually you know establish that link between you know, work and chores and money and, and, and sort of how that evolves. Does anybody have kids before we get into this? Imran does. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've got I've got three of the little cost centers. And um, <laughs> the, the idea, the prospect of being a central banker in my own house is just fantastic. I, I, I love that idea. I'm, 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 a, I'm sold. The, um, you know, I'd have to watch inflation and everything. It'd be brilliant. I, I think that there is so much that parents need to do to impart good financial sense to their children because it's not done at schools. It's not done at schools. It's not done by the financial institutions when they're grown up. In fact, they're on the other end of an asymmetric kind of information disadvantage. 
And so I think it's part of, you know, good financial sense is a really important thing to be able to do it. And if this app helps, then I think that'd be brilliant. I have tried other apps and they don't really get the kind of engagement that you'd want. So Sarah, a bit, bit to your point, I'd love to know what makes this one worth a billion, a billion plus. Um, I, I'm as interested in being customer as, as, I, as I would be an investor. But if they've gotten it right and you can really help children with it, I think it's a good thing. The, the, the other thing as well is that beyond the financial sense, there is a bit of um, knowing without appearing spooky what your children are spending their money on is quite a, a helpful thing as a, as a parent in the same way that you kind of want to know what they're doing on social media. You want to know what they're watching on Netflix. You want to know how they're spending their time on YouTube. You know, as parents, you're kind of inundated. You feel a, a responsibility to do that. If this can help you do it in a non, non-spooky way, then uh, that would be profound. But I feel it's all copyable. That's a really interesting angle, though, Imran, because I think you tend to look at these types of propositions or products and you naturally think of the user as the child. And it's really interesting to get, well, these are the benefits from a parent perspective because you have to forget that they're the user as much as the child. Laurel, keen to get your thoughts on uh, on this story as well. Yeah, I think it is the, the benefit of being able to access that data from the parent's perspective that makes the parent pay um, and also handing over the educational tool and kind of because they might not know themselves how to teach their children. So if there's a kind of simple way that you just hand it over age four and then go, if you do washing up, you're going to get, you know, a pound or something, then I think that would be great. I mean, my daughter is my co-founder, so it's not relevant for this target market. I'm not in this target market at all. She's 25 now. So, but I think for my nieces and, you know, my, my sister, this would be, this could be really good, especially when they're gaming and you kind of, they're getting enticed to kind of buy things and you don't want them spending money on roadblocks, whatever it is. I don't know what they're buying, but they're just, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they shouldn't be buying. Yeah, agree. Absolutely. And I think that control element, but then also the creating that link between, all right, well, you can buy these things, but actually how much have you got in your virtual money pot oh it's not quite enough so you're gonna have to you know keep like saving and saving. it's building those good habits one thing that i wonder or one thing that slightly concerned me as i as i read the the story summary was um that they'll be working to roll out a revamped app with investing tools and i wonder whether children need to have that level of financial responsibility at such a young age it depends what age the children are, right? So if we're talking 13 to 16-year-olds, then yes, probably fair to give them, um, uh, you know, uh, give them some education and investing, particularly if you're the one doing the returns. I mean, then, you know, uh, you, you, can, you can entirely set, you know, whether it's a good thing for them to do or not. But I think it depends on the age. Sorry, I was just going to make a comment that um, it's very hard to get kids into the saving habit when interest rates are 0.1%. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe this of- is an antidote to that. I was going to say, I think you need something to, to keep them engaged. You know, the uh, the idea of, oh, I can't remember what, what exactly you call it for children, but the kind of putting off satisfaction is a really hard thing for young children to get their heads around. And if you're compounding at 20 bips per annum, that just ain't going to do it. So, um, But at the same time, investing and gambling, there is a, uh, they sit on a spectrum. And helping children understand how to navigate, that's really important. There are a lot of gaming apps which could, uh, which veer on gambling and could be reclassified as gambling, which is something that, uh, you know, I have conversations with the kids about and it, it's it's hard for them to understand. Yeah, and again, a really important flag um, on this one as well as that you can teach good behaviours, but again, that risk needs to be managed. Okay, um, I am going to move us on now as we're getting towards the end of the show. Um, so we're just going to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover. Um, as with every week, there is so much happening this week. We can't cover all these stories, but these deserved a shout out. So, Sarah, do you want to start? Sure. Um, so the first one is that NAB is to roll out Pollinate and Joins Investor Group. So uh, National Australia Bank has struck a multi-year deployment deal with merchant acquiring startup Pollinate, uh, a UK-based fintech. Pollinate offers a cloud-based technology platform for banks. Um, the offering is a merchant-friendly, their words, experience, which includes payments, business management, marketing connectivity with consumer and charitable giving. Uh, the Pollinate offering is intended to compete with the likes of WorldPay um, and NAB joins NAB. 
NatWest, MasterCard, EFM Asset Management and Motive Partners as an investor in Pollinate and brings the total amount raised to £70 million. Um, My only comment on this is that I don't know enough to know what makes Pollinate stand out from any of the other options out there. And, you know, WorldPay is just one of the the many, many um, uh, merchant uh, acquiring um, operations there are. So uh, great for Pollinate. Um, No more comments. (laughs) Great. Yeah, I think one to watch for sure. Um, our next story comes from Finextra concerns Amex rolling out Amazon business cards in the UK. So Amex today announced the launch of a new Amazon Business American Express card and the Amazon Business Prime American Express card. Catchy. Snappy. For small, yeah, for small businesses in the UK. Uh, I think I've already gone over time just reading that sentence. Um, The cards offer rewards and payment flexibility designed to help businesses better manage their cash flow and gain greater insight into their spending. Reward points can be collected anywhere that accepts American Express as a payment option and redeemed towards future Amazon purchases or applied to the balance of their monthly card statement. The launch comes at a time when 63% of British SMBs say that cash flow issues have led them to delay purchasing goods and services they need in order to properly run their business. So I guess this is just another interesting example of one of the big um, tech players sort of hiving off another one of the more profitable portions of the financial services market. Again, I think this is fairly classic Amazon in that this partnership looks very much set up to sort of further their own ecosystem. You know, really a lot of the sort of rewards based off here is about purchasing on Amazon. Um, and I think, again, that's very classic, um, classic Amazon. Cool. So the next one is that Samsung Pay has tapped Solaris Bank to connect to any German bank account. So Samsung has joined forces with Visa and Solaris Bank to enable Germans to link an account with almost any bank to its contactless mobile payments service. For the first time in Europe, people who register for Samsung Pay will receive a virtual Visa debit card, which can link to almost any German bank account. Uh, Once the customer is signed up, they can make purchases at the point of sale with a tap of their Samsung phone. Users will also get access to Solaris Bank's split pay, which enables them to pay for purchases of over €100 in installments over a period of up to 24 months. Um, I think this is really interesting. Um, I think anything that brings, you know, uh, virtual cards more to the fore and enables that kind of instant spending is is good for the banks. Um, But also, I think it's the way that a a lot of the the consumer payments apps are going. Um, You know, I don't know the details of this kind of these kind of virtual cards, whether they're standalone virtual cards or whether they're linked to a, a physical card or whether it's just linked to the account um, because if they're the proper you know virtual cards then that is the extra security layer that everybody's looking for when it comes to mobile payments um, so I, I think it's a really good good thing intrigued that it's Samsung I think we see a lot of innovation out of Samsung that doesn't necessarily get the credit it deserves yeah agree um, I think a, a, a sort of win-win partnership there and, and, and good luck to them Okay. Um, And finally, our and finally story this week comes from Coindesk. uh, And rather bizarrely concerns Coinbase drawing a line in the sand for activist employees. So last week's and finally um, was all about nationwide taking a stand and clapping back against racism in response to a prejudiced tweet from one of their own customers encouraging him to close his accounts with them if he did not share their sentiments around diversity and inclusion. By stark contrast this week, Brian Armstrong, CEO of Coinbase, took a strong stance against employee-driven corporate activism over the weekend, explaining that going forward, his company would be, and I quote, mission-focused. That means Coinbase will devote all of its attention to achieving the goal of creating infrastructure of the crypto economy, but will not take part in any kind of activism or take a stand on policy or societal issues that go beyond that mission, claiming that while those issues are important, Coinbase's best shot at making the world a better place is by achieving its central mission. Um, When I read this, I have to be honest, the term mission-focused in this context genuinely gave me the creeps. Um, And I think these remarks sound pretty jarring in the face of what is a growing global movement aimed at eradicating 
social justice, which I think is the kind of mission that we should all be focused on. Um, I'm just going to throw this out of the room, but this seems pretty out of touch, right? I think it depends where you are as to whether it's out of touch. I think to us, it feels out of touch. I don't know that as the CEO of a huge tech and particularly crypto company, a, a male, and I don't know if he's white, but I'm guessing from his name, I may be wrong, CEO of a huge tech company. Um, I think it's, I think, I mean, I think it's completely out of touch. I think it's com- makes me shiver, as you say. Um, but what concerns me more is how many other CEOs of similar companies, um, looking at you, Elon Musk, um, take a similar stance and how much power do these people have and maybe being a bit doomsday about that but it worries me that that's his stance and that he can take that stance yeah i think it's it's power and it's it's influence i i wondered if in a weird way by sort of making the the remarks um he actually sort of furthered some of these activist initiatives by sort of bringing attention to them you know in that sort of weird roundabout way Laurel, what were your sort of thoughts on this when you when you read this first? I mean, I just think it's a really strange, bizarre thing to kind of put out from a PR perspective. You know, it, it's completely, you know, what your employees care about is what they care about. And, you know, whether you disagree or not is not up to you, you know. Um, so I guess it's kind of quite a bizarre, hard line to, to draw in the sand and to kind of put your company's mission alongside that is just for me it just it didn't feel it doesn't feel right it doesn't feel good anyway so um yeah I thought there was there, there could be better things to to say um in a public forum than than that yeah and you know his his post came in response to employee movement at Coinbase so rather than external pressure um he explains how he recently realized some employees I believe Coinbase's world-changing mission means the firm should actively push forward for other ways to improve the world, you know, which is fair enough. Um, And now that he's taken this stance, it seems he has very politely told those people to be activists on their own time or, uh, I guess, find another job. Um, What are your thoughts on this, Imran? Do you know that point around finding another job is really important? Because actually, if if this translates into discrimination in the workforce, for people having different views and opinions, he's going to get himself into hot water quite quickly. This may be just a very naive, uh, ill-thought-through comment that you find actually gets redacted, not redacted, but reversed uh, at some point in the future. I, I'm, I'm, it does jar. It does jar. But you know what? Closer to home, what have the BBC done with all their employees asking them not to tweet about stuff? So, you know, <laughs> watch the space, as they say. I just um, I just looked up his uh, the blog post in which he announced it because I thought you know, I hadn't read that beforehand. Um, and he does make a point of saying, we'll focus on the things that help us achieve our mission and included in that is fair talent practices. So we work to reduce unconscious bias in interviews. Uh, we have a pay for performance culture. Um, we work to create an environment where everyone is welcome and can do their best work regardless of background, sexual orientation, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that doesn't, mean i mean just because just because that's what they say they're doing the work to create an environment where everyone is welcome it sounds like they're only going to en- engage in these issues if they're internal but i don't believe that you can say oh well, we're only going to tackle sexism within coinbase it sort of makes me think that he thinks oh well i'm just taking sexism example sexism doesn't exist in coinbase so we don't need to engage with it that's almost how i, I read that and that may just be my reading of it and, and also see also racism ageism um homophobia etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but I, it just makes me think that he has this view of his company where he doesn't need to, they don't need to engage with those issues because they don't exist for him. It's an outside problem. But I, again, that's my interpretation of him. I don't, I don't know anymore. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. And I think, you know, fundamentally culture is top down. Um, and you can, again, sort of say that you're addressing these things. You can talk to, um, you can talk to them, but are they actually doing them? I mean, Really, who knows? I guess just to um, just to offer some examples of where um, tech companies in particular um, have taken stands to support causes or, or even petition their own companies or employees to do better. Thousands of Google employees staged a walkout in 2018 over how the company handles sexual harassment allegations. Amazon workers continually speak out against the company making its facial recognition technology available to law enforcement. Facebook employees are critical of CEO Mark Zuckerberg in public forums. Um, 
you know, I think having back to my point about culture, having open forums there where people can feel safe at work and feel safe in, in openly criticizing things that they don't agree with within their own company is really important. It's a core component. And this doesn't seem to exist at Coinbase. Uh, so then I guess just to, uh, just, just a final point on this, Sarah, is it, um, maybe a, a sign of the times that are, and finally stories, which have traditionally tended to be lighthearted ways to to close out the show you know the last couple that i've been on they they've been sort of addressing more social issues um i suspect it possibly is i think maybe um maybe i need to de- dedicate less time to following the fintech news and more time to finding you know monkeys ransacking atms or you know penguins taking out bank accounts i quite like an animal story i may, I may dedicate some time next week to doing that seeing if i can find a, a finance technology animal crossover story with a happy ending with no no animals ending up you know dead I, or anything. Like, I would not be against just doing an entire show like that, we could do a special insight <laughs> show and it would just cover those types of stories. And if you're looking for a co-host, I'm right here. I'm your man. Let, let's do it. I know that our producers are on board with, with animal-based stories. All right, let's leave it on that lighthearted note. Let's decide <laughs> that we're going to do it. We're going to pitch for Q1 next year, an animal fintech show. Good. All right. I can't see the, I can't wait to see the tweets that come off the back of that. Um <laughs> Great. That wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Guys, where can people find out more about you? Let's start with you, Imran. Um, Well, I am on LinkedIn uh, and I've got a Twitter handle. uh, And uh, I'd encourage anyone who wants to learn more about open banking, go to the open banking website, uh, check out the open banking app store and see all the cool uh, businesses that are building uh, open banking enabled products. Awesome. Um, Laurel? Yeah, and we're at sustainably.co on website. And obviously, I'm also on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out there. Awesome. Sarah? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Please tweet me your animal-related fintech stories. I genuinely want them. Yeah, absolutely. Greatest hits. Um, and as for me, you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps us make it better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.